Welcome to Off the Cuff with Congressman Jared Huffman. As a representative for California's 2nd Congressional District, Off the Cuff is my opportunity to talk with you about important issues and to introduce you to interesting people from the 2nd District and beyond. It's unfiltered, it's direct, and it's honest. It's Off the Cuff with me, Congressman Jared Huffman. Welcome to my latest podcast. This is Congressman Jared Huffman, and I am really delighted to be joined by one of my favorite colleagues. Uh, If any of you watch television or read the newspaper, you're going to see a lot of uh, Congressman Adam Schiff because he's the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, He is somebody that we look to to explain all of the Byzantine workings of the Russia investigation, uh, as well as many, many other things involving our national security interests and intelligence matters. And uh, the the thing I hear most uh, consistently about Adam Schiff is just how smart and composed and measured and thoughtful he is, like the right guy at the right time uh, at a a fairly critical moment in our country's history. So uh, that's no accident. It turns out Adam actually has some real chops as a, as a prosecutor at the U.S. Attorney's Office before his nine terms in the United States Congress and his time in the California State Senate. Uh, Adam was, was prosecuting folks, including, I understand, the first FBI agent ever to be indicted for espionage. So um, can't imagine anybody with more credibility or qualifications to do the job that you're doing right now. Adam, welcome to my podcast. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you. And uh, oddly enough, uh, in an example of how life comes full circle, that FBI agent that I prosecuted was charged with spying for the Russians. Uh, So I find myself once again dealing with the FBI extensively in the case of uh, malevolence by the Bruskies. Wow. And and it turns out, before we get into the Russian investigation, um, you and I do have a little bit of a running joke from other work that we've done together. Do you want to share that with my podcast listeners? Uh, yes. Uh, Jared and I have teamed up for years on the issue of orcas uh, and our shared uh, desire to make sure that orcas are not kept in captivity uh, any longer and that practice comes to an end. Uh, so we partnered on that and uh, had, I think, a fairly miraculous result as a result of uh, obviously not just our work, but so many activists uh, all over the country and so much uh, good work in our state legislature. But we we bonded over orcas, uh, and uh, now and then we discuss uh, when we're considering whether we should support a candidate or um, a particular contested election, what's their position on orcas, because it's kind of a deal breaker. And what do they know about toothed whale taxonomy? Exactly. Yeah. Yes. So, important things. <laughs> so let's let's dive into the Russia investigation because uh, that's what uh, is is concerning our, our country greatly, but also I hear a lot about this from my constituents. And, and it seems like uh, our president and, and his, his newly hired attorney, Rudy Giuliani, are in a, a red-hot hurry to wrap this thing up. And so they keep saying that, you know, a year has passed, it's really time to wrap this up. Uh, but it seems to me that in some ways the, the work of this uh, special counsel has only just begun. We haven't yet seen the indictments involving the hacking of the DNC. Uh, what can you tell us about what you would expect to be the timing of the investigation and, and what might come next? Well, as someone who uh, used to prosecute complicated white-collar cases, I have to say that 
the pace at which Bob Mueller has proceeded is really quite breathtaking. Uh, it may seem excruciatingly slow uh, for the president, uh, and I can understand certainly why he'd like this to come to an end. But in terms of working up a complicated case, uh, they have been enormously efficient and capable. They've returned indictment after indictment uh, involving complicated tax fraud schemes and bank fraud, uh, money laundering, uh, false statements and perjury. It has been really a remarkable um, accomplishment by the team so far. But every week we learn more information on the issue of collusion, more information on the issue of obstruction of justice, more information on a whole host of other very serious allegations. Just within the last week, there are uh, allegations about uh, whether the Gulf states, uh, Gutter or UAE, were involved in trying to uh, pass money through to the first family through Michael Cohen. Uh, there are other serious allegations uh, involving Michael Cohen's other clients, uh, such as this Russian oligarch uh, uh, and others. So the scope uh, is very hard to um, limit when additional allegations, serious allegations of potential corruption keep coming to the fore. The Michael Cohen side of this uh, seems to be the latest chapter, um, and, and you know he's always been a, a bit of a player on these issues. He is mentioned in this Christopher Steele dossier, um, but I don't think anyone had any idea uh, about the depth and breadth of his involvement and, and all of these new things that we're hearing about uh, money from and not just corporations, but maybe foreign governments that, that he may have been funneling. Did you see any of this coming, or is this uh, breaking news to you too within the last couple of weeks? Well, one thing that I, uh, I could see coming uh, to some degree, and we don't have much visibility into what the special counsel is doing, but it seemed extraordinary to me that the Justice Department would take on not just a lawyer, and, and a search of a lawyer is an extraordinary yeah. event, but the president's lawyer. It seemed, uh, uh, you know, extraordinary to me that they would do that over nothing other than a campaign finance violation. There had to be more. Okay. Uh, and indeed, uh, we're learning that apparently there was a lot more. And maybe the focus of this investigation has a lot less to do with Stormy Daniels' payments uh, and maybe a lot more to do with Michael Cohen's uh, alleged solicitation of money um, the connection of this uh, Russian oligarch Vekelsberg, uh, what was he paying, uh, you know, this vast amount of money for? Uh, half a million dollars, you don't just uh, write out a check for that for no reason whatsoever. Was this a payment for services already rendered? Was this a payment for services to be rendered? Uh, if so, what kind of services? Um, so uh, a lot of questions, but one that was answered for me already was, there is more involved in this than the simple question of whether the president received a surreptitious campaign payment. Yeah. So to, to the point you were making earlier about how productive this first year of the Mueller investigation has been, um, can you compare that to the special counsels in the past and how long they have generally taken what they've been able to produce? I mean, Ken Starr, of course, had a very famous... Uh, role in, in uh, ultimately uh, impeaching um, Bill Clinton. It seemed to me he took a lot longer than a year and produced a lot less. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, some of these investigations have gone on for years and produced nothing at all. Um, certainly nothing of the scope that Bob Mueller already has. 
I mean, what, what was the end result of the Whitewater endless investigation? Uh, if you look at Benghazi, in which the Congress engaged in a total of eight investigations, uh, spent millions of dollars, uh, those investigations took place over the course of three and a half years. Uh, so we are uh, less than a third into the length of the Benghazi investigation. Uh, but that's already too long for the president, too long for the president's allies. Uh, the same guy that brought us the endless Benghazi investigations, Trey Gowdy, um, said we've done too much to look into what the Russians did, what the Trump organization did, and what's more has adopted the view now as the chair of government reform that Congress really shouldn't be in the business of investigation. Well, that's quite a revelation for yeah. someone who... What a difference a couple of years makes. Yes, yes, indeed. What a difference a change administration makes. Uh, you know, one thing, though, that... Uh, we are seeing going on um, in the Congress, which is enormously destructive, and it's being done under the umbrella of Russia, and that is they're, they're not investigating what they were charged to investigate, but they are um, involved in a wholesale effort to tear down the Justice Department, tear down the FBI, so that anything they produce that's incriminating the president can be disregarded. So ultimately they can justify either firing people or uh, discrediting what Mueller comes up with. And this will do long-lasting damage to those institutions. Already we are seeing cracks in the edifice of the independence of the Justice Department. Uh, and uh, people need to be aware of this, that uh, uh, as, you know, as I like to try to remind my colleagues on the committee, um, we need to think beyond this president and this presidency to the long-term damage that's being done to our institutions. So I'm going to come back to you about the, the long-term and the constitutional implications of some of these possibilities, but, but first I want to ask you about the House Intelligence Committee, because this used to be a committee, um, I've been here six years, and prior to the last two years, um, this committee was almost a little bit of a backwater. It wasn't high profile. Uh, members were often uh, even unable to talk about a lot of the work the committee did. Uh, the, the members that uh, served on the committee often, you know, cycled through in two and four-year stints, primarily doing their work in Congress on other committees. That really has changed dramatically. Uh, but the other thing that's changed is it's gone from being a, a very bipartisan consensus committee to this forum for extreme partisan combat. and. Uh, I wonder what the heck happened to the House Intelligence Committee in the last year and a half? Well, you're exactly right. The Intel Committee um, had a reputation, and it was well-deserved, of being probably among the least partisan uh, on the Hill. It's one of the things that attracted me to the committee. It uh, didn't usually generate a lot of bomb-throwing by the parties. Um, and members were really restricted in what we could talk about, and still are. Um, the Russia investigation is, is an obvious exception. Um, what happened happened very early on in the investigation. When we had our first public hearing, our first open hearing, during that open hearing, uh, we came very well prepared to make the case for why we needed a comprehensive and nonpartisan investigation of Russia. Uh, and the Trump Organization. We set out what we knew to date, what the allegations were that needed to be investigated. There seemed to be bipartisan agreement on that. Uh, and then Comey dropped a bombshell, which was during the same time that the FBI had been conducting the Clinton email investigation, they'd also been conducting an investigation of the Trump Organization uh, and whether um, any members of that uh, Trump campaign 
uh, we're acting as agents of a foreign power, that power being Russia. Now, for those in the GOP who have been suggesting, like the president, that the FBI is some liberal cabal, pro-Clinton cabal, they cannot explain why they talked so openly about the Clinton email investigation in a way that was so damaging to her campaign, but nonetheless kept successfully uh, and secretly uh, this investigation going at the Trump Organization at the same time. But that hearing, I was later told by one of my GOP colleagues on the committee, they considered an unmitigated disaster. Now, I was struck by this because I could understand why the White House would view it that way, but I couldn't understand why the committee Republicans would view it that way. But the reason they did view it that way is they viewed their mission really as quite different than following the facts than the public declarations. They viewed their mission as protecting the president. And it was the very next day that the chairman went on the now infamous midnight run. Uh, And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the White House came down like a ton of bricks uh, on the leadership of our committee and said, you're running that committee, you're supposed to have my back, you need to do something. Um, And that blew up on them. And this midnight, insiders know what you're talking about, but this this was the the choreographed exchange of documents between uh, Devin Nunes and a member of the Trump administration. Can can you just tell us what happened? Yes, Uh, well, what happened was the day after that hearing, uh, around midnight, the chairman got out of a vehicle he was in with his staff, uh, got into an Uber and went to an undisclosed location. Uh, and the following day, he had announced that he had received from a secret source documents showing a vast unmasking conspiracy by the Obama administration. That is, the Obama administration was getting classified information where the identities had not been revealed and was unmasking them as a way of surveilling the Trump campaign. This came on the heels of Trump himself uh, tweeting out that he'd been wiretapped in Trump Exactly. This was a way of vindicating the president's claim of being wiretapped, which was nonsense, but nonetheless. So the chairman goes to the White House. He does a big press conference and says, I have such urgency. I need to show the White House these documents that I've discovered from my secret source. Uh, I haven't even shown them to my own committee, but they're of such a sensitive nature, I couldn't wait. Well, we would learn within days, because it was a complete Keystone Coppers operation, that the secret location he'd gotten to in the middle of the night was the White House. (laughs) And what he was presenting to the White House, he'd actually gotten from the White House. Well, when that blew up on them, they made the decision in for penny and for pound. Uh, They were going to be all in for the president. Uh, and they would do everything they could to disrupt the investigation, yeah. and they have ever since. Change the subject, investigate the investigators, all of the smoke and uh, confusion that they've exactly. thrown out. Exactly, and to the degree that we were able to bring in witnesses who had relevant testimony, um, they would occasionally affirmatively encourage them not to answer questions. Uh, when the witnesses would refuse, they would uh, not allow us to use compulsion to force them to answer questions. You can't call that an investigation. You can call it a whitewash, but not an investigation. Now, they walked away, but we are continuing to do the investigative work. So I want to ask you about that. Uh, First of all, though, about the the investigation, uh, with apologies to that word, because it it seems like it hasn't been a fulsome investigation. Uh, What what are the things that Republicans refuse to look for, refuse to ask about, refuse to uh, subpoena witnesses. What, what are the areas of inquiry that you would have wanted to see from a serious investigation? There are literally dozens of witnesses that were 
obvious candidates to be interviewed in the investigation, uh, including people who had prior knowledge of the Trump Tower meeting, for example. Um, there's someone uh, that we've identified that knew the meeting was going to take place in advance, knew it was going to be about delivering dirt on Hillary Clinton. Um, an obvious person to say, okay, how did this meeting come about and what can you tell us about what the Russian intentions were and uh, why didn't they have a certain material with them and is there a relationship between that meeting and what happened days later when the Russians shipped these documents to WikiLeaks for publication, they wouldn't even bring the witness in. Um, when we did bring witnesses in, like Don Jr., uh, and we asked him, we looked at, showed him phone records and said, okay, here are two calls between you and this Russian oligarch's son, Amin Agalarov. In between these two calls where you're discussing having this meeting is a third call from a blocked number. <laughs> Who's that third call from? Is that dad? Yeah. I don't know. I don't remember. Um, the natural thing... Let's go find out. Let's find out. Yeah. Let's subpoena the phone records of candidate Trump and see, did he place a call yeah. at that time, on yeah. that date, for that length of time? It's a very easy, yeah. quite obvious investigative step. They refuse to do it. The reality is they don't want to know the answer. They're afraid to know the answer. Uh, so that was what we were up against. Now, now uh, just this week, the Senate Intel Committee, which has operated in a much more bipartisan fashion, um, announced a joint conclusion of the chair and ranking member that the intelligence community got their assessment right. Uh, now that assessment said that the Russians had three goals, um, help Trump, hurt Clinton, and sow discord. Uh, our majority on the House Intel Committee um, takes issue with the very idea that the Russians were trying to help Donald Trump. They Just are recreational meddling with no <laughs> plan at all. Okay. Well, our, our majority is now a complete outlier. Um, the Senate Republican don't agree with them. The Mueller investigation doesn't agree with them, as you can see from the Mueller's yeah. indictment, the Mueller indictment of the Russians. The intelligence community doesn't agree with them. You cannot maintain bipartisanship, much as I have tried, where you have one side of the committee that has decided its mission is not a credible investigation. It's not nonpartisanship. Yeah. It is protecting the president at all costs. Yeah. Um, so meanwhile, the House Republicans have uh, shut down the investigation. They've released this report. Um, the, the, the no collusion uh, mantra continues to be tweeted out, you know, about once a week uh, by the president. For those who uh, hear these things and see the headline, House Committee Finds No Collusion, uh, what, what is the, uh, the rejoinder to that? What's the pushback? Because obviously you, you think there is enough evidence of collusion that we should keep looking into this. Oh, without a question. Uh, we have discovered over the past year a great deal of evidence of collusion. And I'll, I'll walk through just some of, of which is in the public realm. But we now know that back as early as April of 2016, uh, the Russians approached the Trump campaign using classic Russian tradecraft. Uh, and that is they don't send a card-carrying member of the SVR, their mm -hmm. CIA, to a potential target. They send intermediaries. And in this case, they sent a Maltese professor, like right out of a Hitchcock movie, to approach the campaign through a guy named George Papadopoulos, one of the few foreign policy advisors to the Trump campaign. And in April Who 20th, has pled guilty and is presumably telling all this to the special counsel, right? Yes, yes. And they tell Papadopoulos that... 
they've got dirt on Hillary Clinton in the form of thousands of stolen emails. This is April of 2016. That date is significant because it's so early. Uh, the, the emails aren't released until July. So this is months before the world knows that either the Russians have them or that they plan to release them. So the Trump campaign is the first to learn this. The Clinton campaign doesn't even know at this point that the Russians have the DNC emails. So within weeks of that uh, disclosure to the Trump campaign, there's another overture by the Russians using, again, classic tradecraft, this time the highest levels of the campaign, the president's son, son-in-law and campaign manager, um, where it is communicated to that group, we've got dirt on Hillary Clinton, which the campaign now knows they do have, and this is part of the Russian government's effort to help Donald Trump. This is through the Agalarovs. This is through the Agalarovs. Now, the Agalarovs, so your listeners are aware, Aris Agalarov, the father, is widely considered the Russian Donald Trump. He's this big real estate developer, very close to Putin. Uh, and the Russians use their oligarchs as instruments of state policy. Uh, if you are a billionaire in Russia and you want to keep your billions, you don't say no to Vladimir Putin. Uh, and so they use Aris Agalarov as a channel to the Trump campaign, knowing of this relationship between the two of them. Uh, and through this channel, they communicate with Trump. We want to help you. The Russian government wants to help you, and we've got stuff that you want to see. Uh, and this is all in black and white, uh, which is uh, really quite a wonder. Uh, you know, I've tried a lot of difficult cases where proving intent is right. hard because people don't put it in, in black and white. But the Trump campaign's response in black and white is, if you say it is what it is, yeah. that is, Russian government help, that hurts Hillary Clinton, we would love it. Yeah, this is not even circumstantial evidence. This is rather direct evidence it is. of intent and in their actions. Absolutely, absolutely. And so they have the meeting, um, and the Trump campaign basically sends a message back to the Kremlin. We love your help, but when you produced at this meeting, we're really disappointed. Now, why are they disappointed? Russians have told them they have much better. Yeah. And within days of that meeting, Julian Assange announces... They get the goods. I've got the stuff, yeah. which we now know he got from the Russians. Right. So this is just some of the evidence. Now, one of the more telling pieces of evidence on the issue of collusion is the designated national security advisor, Mike Flynn, the incoming national security advisor, has secret conversations with the Russians right. where they work on undermining these sanctions that were imposed over right. their violating our laws by helping the Trump campaign. Now, if so that I, gets you both the quid and the quo here. Uh, yes. You, you've got the offer oh, of assistance, yes. and then you've got all of this activity around weakening and, and eliminating sanctions. Exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the, the sad reality is, um, and this is, I think, one of the most cross-cutting challenges we face, um, if I presented those facts uh, in mirror image to my GOP colleagues, and I said, what would you say if I told you that Chelsea Clinton <laughs> and the Clinton campaign manager, Robbie Mook, had a secret meeting in the Brooklyn headquarters of the Clinton campaign with a Russian delegation dispatched from Moscow for the purpose, uh, under the promise of dirt on Donald Trump as what was described as the Russian government's effort to help the Clinton campaign? Would you consider that collusion? Particularly if they lied about it thereafter, <laughs> which the Trump 
yeah. campaign repeatedly. did yeah. repeatedly and still does. Of course they would. Yeah. But we're so polarized now yeah. and they've got the whole Fox Sinclair apparatus yes. to create an alternate factual world for people to live in that you can't see what is directly in front of you yeah. uh, in the case of this evidence of collusion. So I know I'm going to lose you momentarily, but I, I want to ask you about the, the bigger ramifications that you alluded to earlier. Um, several of, of your colleagues, Ed Perlmutter and I and a few others, have been so concerned about protecting the Mueller investigation from interference and maybe even you know, the possible firing of the special counsel or others that we've been going to the floor uh, every week if we can doing what I call moments of truth. Uh, where we talk about um, all of the lies, all the cover-up, and the reason why we need to let this investigation play out so we can learn the truth. Uh, what happens if there is interference or even the firing of Rosenstein, Mueller, or some combination of officials? Uh, people have referred to that as a constitutional crisis. But for you know, our listeners, in your opinion, what, what does that mean? Is there a constitutional crisis, and where do we go if and when that happens? Well, and let me just say how much I appreciate the work that you do on this issue and, and have been doing uh, on the floor and elsewhere, uh, and frankly on a whole variety of issues. Uh, you're one of our great environmental champions, and you're just one of our great members. Uh, Thank you. We were talking earlier about the lack of bipartisanship, and you happen to be one of the few members that enjoys uh, the, the respect of people on both sides of the aisle. So your, your constituents are very lucky to have you. Um, what happens, is it a constitutional crisis if the president fires Mueller, or more likely if he fires Rod Rosenstein? Yes, it is. Now, what happens when you have a constitutional crisis? The reason it's a crisis is there's no prescribed uh, pathway. Uh, you're in a conflict between two branches of government, and there's no clear answer. Yeah, you're going to Google search the Constitution <laughs> and come up with nothing. Exactly. I think as a practical matter, what it means is this place, meaning the federal government, comes to a halt, uh, that people literally take to the streets around the country. Uh, and we have to decide what is, the, what is the response when the President of the United States affirmatively acts to obstruct justice in an investigation involving his own person and his family? Um, what is the remedy? Uh, is the remedy to um, re-establish the Office of Independent Counsel uh, an office we used to have and one to which Bob Mueller could then be appointed and be beyond the reach of the president uh, is the response um, to, to have to consider whether this rises to the level of removal from office. Um, we would have to be asking ourselves a lot of hard questions and, uh, and I don't know where that leads us. Um, I have to say I'm deeply concerned by um, not just the willingness of so many of our GOP colleagues to be complicit in the presence of right. attacks on our institutions, but their utter silence uh, when he does threaten to fire Mueller, when he talks about pulling the license of NBC because he doesn't like their contact, um, when he makes these assaults on the rule of law and our colleagues remain mute, it is an open invitation to that crisis. Yeah. Amen. Well, I know I'm, uh, I'm past the time that I uh, told you we would keep you, but I want to ask you one more question if I can. Far from Russia, far from House Intelligence Committee, uh, we did work together on the issue of orca captivity, introduced a bill to ban orca captivity, killer whales to some people. 
uh, and although we, we didn't get votes and, and didn't pass that legislation, uh, we actually did make a difference working with the Humane Society and others on the outside uh, uh, on a pressure campaign. Um, it looks like the captivity of these huge, highly intelligent marine mammals is going to be a thing of the past uh, in the not-too-distant future. How do you feel about that? I think it's wonderful. I think it's just terrific. And it's an illustration how sometimes the mere introduction of legislation can accomplish an objective uh, or contribute to it. Um, obviously, uh, you know, you, when you introduce a bill, you always hope you can get it to the president's desk and it gets signed. But in this case, I think what SeaWorld confronted was a legislature that was hell-bent on making sure that the generation of uh, orcas in captivity would be the last. Um, rising opposition around the country, people voting with their feet, not going to the park. A powerful uh, documentary, Blackfish. A powerful, very powerful documentary. It's one of the things that got me involved. Yeah. Uh, and also determined opposition in the Congress, uh, as reflected in, in this legislation and your efforts uh, and mine on the, on the funding side as well, in the appropriation process. Uh, so uh, I think it's a, a wonderful decision for um, these magnificent creatures, but it's also a good decision, a sound business decision for SeaWorld. Um, I always thought it was in their best long-term economic interest as well, uh, and uh, look forward to partnering with you on other environmental causes as well. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. Off the Cuff is produced by Marin's own Tales Untold Media. Our music is also local, provided by Temp Love. Don't miss out on future episodes of Off the Cuff. You can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Just search for Off the Cuff with Jared Huffman. <laughs>